we've got to look at children leaving without qualifications and what's happening you know in the school system and it's not just the school system i think but the wider support that's out there for children that we have so many leaving without any qualifications at all um that is a massive we've not mentioned yet mental health i mean that's there's been a huge impact on the pandemic on children's mental health and the oracy and is is so crucial to helping children discuss and evaluate how they're feeling you know th these these issues are only going to grow in importance anyone what they say about this everybody says the same thing that obviously that speaking and listening are really really important in my opinion they should have the same weight and status as reading and writing and the fact they don't i think is is is, is uh, remarkable <laughs> but not in a good way welcome to rethinking education education's critical friend Friends, frenemies, hominids, lend me your ears. Welcome to episode 41 of the Rethinking Education podcast. There's not a lot you can say about the number 41, but there is an open cluster of a hundred or so stars in the constellation Canis Major, also known as the Little Beehive, which goes by the name of Messier 41. And intriguingly, it seems that Messier 41, or M41 for those on familiar terms, was known to Aristotle in his book Meteorologica. Aristotle wrote of a star to the south of Sirius that seemed to have a faint tail, of which he wrote, and I quote, If you looked hard at it, the light used to become dim, but to a less intent glance it was brighter. Close quote. It's weird, that phenomenon, isn't it? When you look directly at a star and you can't see it, and it's only when you look slightly away that it comes into view. There's no doubt an important lesson for education reform here, which is eluding me for now. Perhaps it's something like that it's only when you stop trying to make things happen that good things happen. But anyway, this episode is dedicated to that little smudge of light in the sky, M41, and indeed to the entire little beehive cluster and to all the alien bees who presumably reside therein. As regular listeners may be aware, oracy, a slightly silly word which is increasingly used to describe the process of spoken communication, is a huge passion of mine and has formed a significant part of my work for the last 15 years or so. My entry into oracy was when I got into doing philosophy for children early in my teaching career, which, in case you aren't aware, is when you basically sit in a big circle and discuss important, fascinating ideas and questions at great length, and it's literally my favourite thing to do as a teacher, partly because it requires no planning or marking, but mainly because it's just the most wonderful, exhilarating way to pass an hour of your time with a group of young and emerging minds. If you'd like to know more about Philosophy for Children, or P4C as it's sometimes known, you could go back and check out episode 13 of the podcast when I discussed Philosophy for Children at length with Ian Gilbert, who broke my brain with a question about a fly stopping a train. Anyway, after my initiation into P4C, I caught the oracy bug big time, and a few years later I did a PhD which turned out to be an eight-year evaluation of an oracy-based learning-to-learn curriculum which had an incredible impact on the kids involved. 
Recently, I came across some of the things that those kids said about the impact that that course had on them, and I'll just share a few of these short excerpts with you, see if you can detect a common theme. One student said, learning skills has helped me so much. It's taught me to stand up for myself and that what I want to say is important. I have found my voice and I think more harder than I ever have done in using the right language. The next student said, the thing I am most proud of this year is the Who Am I project. I'll tell you about the Who Am I project sometime. It's absolutely amazing. Because I've learned to stand up for myself in front of a big group of people confidently. The next student said, the thing I am most proud of for my first year at Seaview is confidence because I'm a lot smarter and I can speak up more. The next person said, now I have the courage to speak in all of my lessons. And the last one says, learning skills has helped me to learn better in subjects because I've got a lot more confident. I suspect that you may have noticed the common theme there. Confidence, courage, standing up for myself, finding my voice. That's what teaching oracy does. It helps people, young and old, find their voice, both physically find their voice and metaphorically find their voice. It helps them to develop confidence and a stronger sense of identity, and it enables them to take their place in the world and to make their voice heard. It's important stuff, this. Nowadays, I do a lot of work with Oracy Cambridge, a study centre at Hughes Hall College in the University of Cambridge, and we do lots of work with schools and other organisations all over the world to help promote effective spoken communication in lots of different ways. I could talk about Oracy all day, and you may be relieved to hear that I'm not going to do that, but I would just like to alight briefly, if I may, on why I think Oracy is so important, if you'll humour me. I sometimes run a one-day workshop for young people and also sometimes for teachers and other adults called the language of power where I essentially teach people a few rhetorical techniques and then they use them to write and then perform a speech on a topic of their choosing. Whenever I run this workshop people often start by saying there's no way you're going to get me up there, absolutely not. Young people and adults alike, people really don't like the idea of public speaking. And of course, by the end of the day, they've all done a speech in front of their peers and they're often amazing because these rhetorical techniques are really powerful and fun to play around with and they're doing it on a topic of their choosing and so they get into it. But what's really interesting is that you can literally physically see the transformative effect that this process has on them. People blush and beam from ear to ear when they've finished and everyone claps and whoops. And as they walk back to their seat, it sometimes seems like they're walking an inch taller. There's a lot more to oracy than teaching kids how to deliver a knockout speech. Listening is a huge part of it also, as is group talk and many other things besides. But when you help young people to develop their ability to use spoken language in this way, it changes them. It's not like teaching a new skill or some knowledge like how to solve an equation or to ride a bike. Teaching kids and adults how to speak and listen effectively can be utterly transformative. It changes how people think of themselves. It changes their ideas about what they might go on to do in the future. Suddenly they start to see themselves as the kind of person who can stand at the front of the room and address a large group of people and make things happen. In recent years, there's been lots of empty political rhetoric about levelling up in this country. 
I'm not really sure what levelling up means when politicians talk about it, but I can't think of a better way to level up society than to ensure that every young person, or the vast majority of them at least, leaves school or their homeschooling or alternative schooling experience with the same level of confidence in spoken language and communication that you typically see in the alumni of expensive private schools where the development of oracy is taken extremely seriously by the way. I'm not saying that everyone should go around talking like a politician, but I do think that the ability to do so should not be the preserve of the privileged. I've covered this ground in previous episodes of the podcast, notably in my recent conversation with John Higgs, and so I'll step down from my soapbox now. Suffice to say that it was my very great pleasure to have recently welcomed Emma Hardy MP onto the podcast, not only because I've never really had an extended conversation with an actual member of parliament before, but because Emma recently set up and chaired the Oracy All-Party Parliamentary Group, the so-called APPG, which carried out an inquiry into the state of Oracy education in England schools over the last few years, and which published an excellent report last year, Speak for Change, which you can find a link to in the show notes if you're not familiar with it already. By way of a kind of correction of sorts, in our conversation we talked about how oracy is notable by its absence from the current inspection framework, among other important official documents, which remains largely true, but we recorded this episode a couple of months ago, and since then Ofsted have published an English curriculum research review, which to my delight, and the delight of many others, explicitly recognises that a strong command of the spoken word is a crucial outcome of English education, and the report devotes a whole section to spoken language that draws on the research of some of my colleagues at Oracy Cambridge and elsewhere. Recently, the Oracy advocacy charity Voice21 published an excellent Twitter thread that breaks down what's in this Ofsted review for the time-pressed doom scroller, and so I'll put a link to that Twitter thread in the show notes in case you'd like to have a look. For some interesting reason known only to themselves, Ofsted appear to be allergic to the word oracy, and in the report they perform all kinds of linguistic acrobatics to avoid using the word, but there is plenty of good stuff in this review and I welcome it wholeheartedly. Before we get to my conversation with Emma, a quick exciting announcement about the upcoming Rethinking Education conference, if I may. We're releasing the speaker names this weekend, and my goodness, we have some crackers. Just to share with you some of the keynotes, all of whom are former guests of the podcast, with the exception of one who will be a future guest, we have Sir Tim Brighouse, Deborah Kidd, Mick Waters, Yumna Hussain, Guy Claxton, Mina Wood, Naomi Fisher, Kulvan Atwal, and Kath Murdoch. Of note is Guy Claxton's talk, which is called School for Dinosaurs, traditional education on its last legs, which I'm going to record with Guy sitting in his back garden in a few weeks, which I'm excited about to say the least. We also have Vivian Porritt, Neil Mercer, Martin Robinson, Lavinia Stennett, Ian Cunningham, Tim Taylor, Lucy Stevens and Tom Oberst from The New School, Sherto Gill, my former MA supervisor and the author of The Tyranny of Testing, the Human Restoration Project from the US, Professor Chun Zhang from Fordham University in New York, who's flying over from the States with some of her doctoral students. And I'll just mention a few more, if I may. 
Rhea Gibbs, who I listened to on a podcast recently, who's phenomenal. Nahida Maharasingham, a former guest. And Cassius, a former Rathburn scholar and student of Nahida's in year six, who wrote a brilliant letter to the United Nations saying that there should be a 17th sustainable development goal for race equality. There's one for gender equality. Why not race equality? And also Stuart McLaughlin, my former head teacher and the originator of the learning skills curriculum, he wrote a brilliant article recently reflecting on his 17 years of headship and he'll be doing a talk called Life at the Sharp End of Government Policy. This is to name just a few people, my friends. I cannot express in words how excited I am that this event is coming together in the way that it is. Early bird tickets are available until July the 17th with a 20% discount and we're also offering a further 20% discount to friends of the podcast if you enter the promo code REPOD20, R-E-P-O-D-20, all lowercase. You need to look for the small blue font at the top of the ticket screen. For some reason, it's easy to miss. So if you get in there before July the 17th, you will receive a 40% discount in total, an £18 discount on the full ticket price. Okay, without further delay, I will now hand over to my recent conversation with Emma Hardy, the former primary school teacher and now the right honourable member of parliament for Kingston upon Hull West and Hessel, who is also the shadow minister for further education and universities. You may notice a slight bit of popping on Emma's microphone in the first minute or so, but hang in there, it doesn't last long. I hope you enjoy the show. Emma Hardy, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to see you. Yeah, well, it's great to see you. So I interviewed the, the last uh, but one interview I had on the podcast was with Tim Brighouse and Mick Waters um, talking about their brilliant recent book about our schools. Have, have you had the chance to, to look at it yet? I've had the chance to look at it, but I do think they're both amazing. I had an email from them recently and um, I was really pleased that they're in touch with sort of our Labour's front bench to sort of discuss their ideas because they're they're just I think they're great people. Yeah they really are and and this book I mean it's a bit of a doorstop I imagine you're quite busy <laughs> what we're doing in MP um, but they, they interviewed basically like every Secretary of State for Education for the last 40 years or something and it's an incredible insight into what goes on behind the scenes because often when you see politicians on TV it's kind of polished you know they're in performance mode or they're doing a speech or they're hitting sort of certain talking points for example and so I, I know we have we don't have long I'll quite happily spend a whole hour asking you about life as an MP because I'm fascinated but I'll limit myself to one question if that's okay there's lots of heat isn't there in politics <laughs> as you've probably noticed as well but I'd like to ask you about the light what's the best thing about being an MP? I think it's the ability to change the law isn't it I mean originally MPs role were to legislate which is why if, when you look back in time and you see who became members of parliament they tended to all be lawyers because it was about legislating and it was about changing the law and if you can change the law in a positive way then that's that's the best thing and i think it was when you get those it's 
cross-party alliances is when it really starts to work because obviously as an as an opposition backbench mp my ability to change the law is is quite limited so you can only do that through building relationships through the governing party so that's quite an interesting thing that i don't think people see so much when they're looking from the outside at, at how things actually work when you get into it so yesterday i was really pleased when the government introduced their white paper which not 100% positive on but there's some good bits in there but one thing I was pleased to see is that um, Robert Health and the chair of the Education Select Committee who's obviously a Conservative member of Parliament I sat on his committee for years and talked about oversee and speaking and listening all that time and he saw me in the voting lobby as I was heading one way and he was heading another um, to say to me that I should be really pleased that he mentioned Dorothy when he questioned the Secretary of State yesterday. So I was like, that's brilliant. You know, that's really, really good. So he said, yeah, he said I thought you'd be pleased when you see that. And he said, oh, you'd have to watch it back. I think, well, that's the good stuff is when you can build those alliances, convince people who aren't naturally maybe on your side, convince them that what your argument is correct and then have the power to change the law and and that's that's the, the most powerful thing a member of parliament can do is change the law for the better yes indeed thank you and you mentioned oracy and that's the main thing that i'd want to i want to start by talking with you about this morning anyway because you chaired the the oracy appg recently the the all party parliamentary group um and you were were you involved in launching that was this your was this your baby as it were absolutely because when i did northern rocks with uh, deborah kidd I was talking to a woman I met called Rebecca Earnshaw and we had some children come up from the school, from uh, Voice 21 school. And I thought it was fascinating, the curriculum that they had. And, and there are obviously huge criticisms I have of free schools and the free school movement. But the one thing it does allow schools to do is to do things in a way that's completely different to what uh, sort of mainstream traditional schools have to do and, and what they've done at Voice 21 in centering the whole curriculum around speaking and listening and obviously development I think is remarkable and really innovative and I'm not saying that we should pick up what they've done there and replicate it all around the country but I think we should definitely look at some of the best things that they do there and how we can involve this in other schools and at the time I was a teacher myself and I thought this made complete sense to me, as every infant teacher knows, before children are able to write, they have to be able to speak in sentences, they have to have conversations, you, know, you do all the things every infant teacher does, all the stuff with puppets and sticks and telling the story before you try and write it, because you've got to be able to speak it before you can put it down. And yet that seems to die off in schools as they get a bit older and especially this move towards this very particular way of teaching you know there's teacher at the chalk face stood at the front children in rows silently listening to what's been said I'm thinking well where's the speaking and listening development where's the oracy uh, development in that so something I was always interested in so when I became a member of parliament I thought well this is my opportunity to sort of raise the profile of this and start talking about why it why it really matters and so we um set it up it's been going for a few years now they had a really good report i mean all the evidence says you know you look at anyone what they say about this everybody says the same thing that obviously that speaking and listening are really really important in my opinion they should have the same weight and status as reading and writing and the fact they don't i think is is is, is uh, remarkable <laughs> but not in a good way 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. And and absolutely. And we'll get into the report um, in a while. And it's been, you know, this, 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 the APPG was, it's been a, an eventful period of time. <laughs> you know, there's been lots going on. Um, and actually, that's part of it, because like the impact of the, of the pandemic on, on spoken language, I've seen it myself in the schools that I've been in, and with teachers that I've spoken to, that that's the thing that when people are talking about like the catch up curriculum, they're often focusing on like basically more academic stuff, like cramming extra maths and English and what have you. But it's the it's the spoken language like the kids really seem to have atrophied through that throughout the period of school closures in their ability to to communicate, to talk about their work, to talk about themselves, to talk about their feelings. And I've, I was talking to some teachers who were saying, you know, there were some units of work. I was talking to an RE teacher said this unit of work we used to have. This used to be the highlight of the year because the kids would get really animated and have these really feisty, crunchy debates. And now it was just like they were just getting nothing back from them. And so I think that this is this agenda is even more uh, more urgent now than it's ever been. Uh, is that something that you found in the in the in the evidence that you that you were um, collecting? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's children from the most disadvantaged backgrounds where we're seeing the biggest language gap. And the government are starting to talk about that, but only in relation to the early years. They don't seem to see why it matters so much and why it's so significant in in later on in years and, and part of what we're trying to say is that oracy is for the whole of the school curriculum the entire time that you're in schooling but it it is a real worry and if you look at areas that have been impacted more by loss of schooling it's areas where there's great greater deprivation so like whole the area that i represent because we had higher rates of covid and we had higher rates of covid over a longer period of time it meant that children were out of education and not able to access that formal education for longer periods and but it's 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 not just those children in school it's also the ones that would have had the health visitor appointments the ones that would have had their checkups whose needs would have been identified before they get to school so what we're hearing from head teachers is that children uh, when they're starting school are, are showing signs of 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 difficulties so there's more for example talking to reception teachers there's more children starting school that aren't even potty trained now and and all these things are having uh having huge difficulties which the pandemic has had a, a massive impact upon but i have to say it wasn't perfect before the pandemic and i do think we need to be wary at saying this is all because of the pandemic i mean the cuts in in early years provision in speaking language provision and in sure start were there before covid came yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the disadvantage gap was already widening before COVID. Um, and so, and uh, yeah, so, so just to share with listeners, the opening blurb to the foreword is really strong, where it's, you start by saying Parliament is famous for being a place where talk matters. The name literally comes from the from the French to talk, parler, right? Um, talk is the currency of politics, how we express our views, how we influence and persuade, negotiate and navigate disagreements, and how we deliberate and come to decisions. But talk is also the currency of learning, how we develop and grow our ideas, understandings, thoughts and feelings and share them with others. And it's a brilliant way to just very succinctly, you know, make a very strong case as to why the, why we need people who are able to, to participate. If you're going to have a participatory democracy, you need people who can have their voice heard, literally and metaphorically. And so one, one thing that I'm really interested in is the fact that we're still having this conversation because the word oracy was invented over 50 years ago, 60 years, was it in the 60s by a British researcher, Andrew Wilkinson, who, who wrote it really fiercely, he wrote this, this brilliant book 
which opens by saying that the opening line in that book was that the spoken language has been shamefully neglected in English education. And so he came out with guns blazing. And, and again, you know, the, the invention of the word oracy was clearly an attempt to give it equal status to literacy and numeracy. And yet here we are 50 years later, and it's not with it's not for want of trying. You know, there's, there's been lots of people who've been working on this for a really long time. There was a big national oracy project in the 80s and early 90s that sort of fizzled out. There's been various sort of changes to the national curriculum and so on. And so what, what do you think of the barriers? Like, why is it that we're still having this conversation? I think it's almost educational fashions as well. I mean, if you think about what's happened in the past decade or a bit longer we've had this sort of this knowledge is king um this sort of almost false argument between knowledge and skills so anyone who works in education tells you of course there's both but you have this sort of false argument polarized through social media and this idea that children aren't learning unless they're quiet and you know silent and in rows and listening to a teacher the font of all knowledge stood at the front and i think so there's this cultural move away from that lively classroom talk in class uh, you know and why talk in classrooms matters i mean i famously remember if you recall this liz trust talking about visiting a nursery where she said the children were moving about without purpose which i just thought was amazing and showed how you know little she spent in a children's nursery um but this whole I, I suppose this 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 fashion around what does good teaching look like and the narrative for the past decade has been good teaching looks like teacher as expert stood at the front directing students and that's what good teaching looks like and I think so this there has been a fundamental shift away from good teaching looking like you know teacher involved in stimulating conversations between different students and I think it's almost like we've had to remake the argument for classroom talk and there's still this uh, underlying trend that good teachers have silent classrooms that children working silently is a sign of a good teacher and and that i think is a difficult culture to shift so even though speaking and listening is in the curriculum and it's in that curriculum under every single subject it's listed and it's there it doesn't get given the same status it's seen as being like a bit of an add-on rather than something that's fundamentally linked to how children learn and the only place i'd say we don't see this is in uh, reception and early years and in reception and early years you do see that teachers understand the importance of speaking and listening um, but our you know the evidence we collected showed that teachers in all year groups understand the importance of speaking and listening but there's also i think um there's because it doesn't have the same status it doesn't have the same training there's not that same look and analysis of how do you develop these specific skills i think children are still expected to develop them just by absorbing them in the environment they're in rather than being fundamentally taught different uh, skills in terms of speaking and listening so i think that's another reason as why yeah yeah absolutely and i think assessment as well you know like it, it's not easy to assess spoken language it doesn't leave a paper trail it's ephemeral you know and so it's and it's hard like i've, I've struggled with it myself as a teacher of, of, of what was a very oracy based 
learning to learn curriculum um, to 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 assess like little paired conversations because you for example you'd come up with a bunch of criteria like you know like to to build on the other person's idea to use good body language to whatever it is you come up with a bunch of criteria that you're looking at and then you go around and observe these little pairs and then you notice that they would do something else like they would use humor really well or they would sort of be able to empathize or put themselves in someone else's shoes or what, there's there's a thousand different ways in which you can be a gifted like spoken communicator. And we were missing loads of, of really interesting stuff by just having this narrow set of criteria. And I remember I had this sheet of A4 paper that started with like six columns and it ended with about 35 <laughs> and then worked my way around the class. And I was just trying to, my hardest to capture, well, it's hard, really hard to measure it on a level playing field. And there's that phrase that was used by a previous uh, guest on the podcast that we treasure what we measure. Mm. And, and so that's a that's a really hard thing. If, if, if we aren't measuring spoken language or if it's difficult to do it in a, in a robust way. And it seems that that was at least partly the reason that, that, that the spoken language element was taken out of the, the English GCSE mm. was because it's just sort of technically quite difficult to do. And so they just thought, oh, well, we'll just make our lives easier. Um, and so that's a that's a tough nut to crack, that one. Um, and I know that in, in the recommendations from the report, well, first of all, before we get to the recommendations, can you just sort of explain just briefly, like in case people aren't aware, what was involved in this inquiry? Because it was a, a full on thing, wasn't it? What, what, what actually in, sort of, did you do in terms of information gathering and so on? Okay, so we obviously asked, for, it's similar to a select committee inquiry. I mean, obviously, APPG is in a way a smaller informal select committees um, so we asked for written evidence which we had quite a lot of we also took oral evidence and questioned lots of different people uh, around oracy and we had some fantastic uh, people coming to give evidence and 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 lots as i say written evidence and some people uh, obviously involving children as well but i think you're i think you're right around the assessment it's around the assessment and it's around the development as well and one of the key things that came up from the report from teachers is that they they understand and recognize the importance of oracy i think everyone gets that the problem was is that how do you as you said how do you measure it and how can you show development in it because uh, when I was teaching myself, everything is about progress and setting the baseline and how much progress has they made and your performance management's based on that and so much of your, how you're judged as a teacher is based on that. But if you can't measure it, then it's very difficult to show progress. And if you're not clearly, uh, if you don't clearly understand what the steps are, whereas most, I, I would say, you know, every teacher, certainly every primary teacher could, could name every developmental step in reading and writing because they'll have done it for years and years and years. But it's much harder when it comes to oracy and speaking and listening. And this was something that came out. And so you wonder this, the two factors working against is obviously the culture, which I think was coming directly from the previous schools minister, this culture. But I think also probably there's a cost involved if government wants to take this seriously because they're going to have to invest in training and and assessment but yeah i mean it was a great inquiry we we, we had to uh it was a bit disappointing because we had it nearly already and then the general election in 2019 was called and then we were thought right we'll try and hopefully get through that and continue the inquiry and then of course the pandemic hit so it was a little bit it was a little bit delayed but we got there in the end we got there in the end but and now uh, and then it became a slightly different tilt on the inquiry because we were also then looking a bit at the impact of the pandemic uh, by the time that we actually <laughs> finished it and got it out. So it was a, a long work in progress. Mm. 
Yeah, and so one more question before we get to the recommendations. Was there anything that surprised you as you as you sat and listened to all of this evidence? Is there anything that made you sort of think, oh, I hadn't really thought of that before? I suppose I, if I'm being honest, I remember Tim Oates' evidence and I had perhaps failed to recognise how much speaking and listening was in the curriculum. Because I think when I start, we started the inquiry, I was thinking, we need to get this in the curriculum. And then it was only when he sort of, I suppose, really showed me it, that you realise it is actually there and therefore it is mandatory. And therefore, when you're looking at what the solutions are to this, we can't just say the solutions generally with teachers seem to be put it in the curriculum, in the national curriculum, but it is in there and, and it's not really happening. So I thought that was quite interesting because that kind of set me off in a looking at this in a slightly different, looking for a slightly different solution to what we were trying to solve here. So the solution isn't that it's not mandatory and it shouldn't be done. The solution is has to be looked at. So what's what are the blocks? I thought that was quite I thought that was quite interesting. I thought it was also quite interesting that you know we're talking about this divide in in educational small p politics at the moment. This whole pro, uh, progressives and traditionalists and this this sort of narrative that there is out there. But the other thing that came through on the obviously was everyone agreed. So even when you had the more uh, people from a traditional background, they agreed it was really important uh, and people from a progressive, but they agreed. So everyone was sort of in agreement, which is so rare when it comes to anything in education, really rare. So that was that was really pleasing that everybody was agreeing. Uh, it was interesting. There was a, maybe a slightly greater emphasis from those people from uh, who would consider themselves to be traditionalist in that they were looking at more formalized debating obviously mechanisms um but everybody still agreed that it should be taught and that it is important so i thought that was that was good yeah absolutely and and that's what people often go to with with oracy they often go to they think of the more performative aspects of it they're thinking about like structured debates presentational talk doing a knockout speech and those things are good but like you know, maybe maybe you know you you, de you debate a lot when you're when you're an MP, but actually in general life, <laughs> the formal structured debating skills are not all that useful. Whereas you know that much more sort of everyday interactions of just like how do you get along with people, how can you you know work effectively with people that you don't know very well or that you might not even like very much, you know, um, much more sophisticated skill set that that fills up you know the majority of our time, um, and and so. Yeah, and, and the, the curriculum thing is an interesting point to note <clears throat> that it's in there, but and but that still isn't being reflected in what's happening in schools. Um, and the, 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 the oracy is an interesting thing because it's sort of part curriculum and part pedagogy, but people often think of it more as a pedagogical thing that it's like what Michael Gold once described as children chatting. You know, he just saw it as <laughs> yeah. this like frivolous, just sort of messy, you know, waste of everybody's time. Um, and they didn't really see that actually teaching people, you know, like some of our colleagues um, at Voice 21 and Oracy Cambridge created an Oracy skills framework a few years ago, which sort of sets out these different dimensions where we've got sort of like physical aspects of spoken language, like, um, you know, um, body language and gesture and, and, you know, like tone of voice and so on. 
you've got cognitive aspects of it, you've got linguistic aspects and social and emotional aspects of it. And each of those four categories break down into a number of different subcategories. And that's basically an oracy curriculum. Like this is not a pedagogical thing. This is like, we need to be teaching kids about how to develop their ability to speak and listen in an effective way in a range of contexts in all of these different ways. And I think that people often don't see it as a curricular issue. They see it as a sort of as a, as a pedagogical thing. And, and like you say, things if, if people are, are moving in a traditional direction, then they might think children interacting with, with one another isn't going to be a useful, useful um, use of time. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a complicated picture, uh, for sure. Um, and, and so in terms of the, the, the recommendations that you made, and the, the recommendations are great, and you make recommendations for the Department for Education and for Ofsted, and for training providers and schools and whatnot. And just to pick out, for example, for, with regard to both the DfE and, and Ofsted, like there was one recommendation in there that it should be in the new NPQs, the National Professional Qualifications for, for Senior Leaders and Head Teachers and what have you. There's about six or seven different versions that, that we're currently in the process of rolling out. And it, I, I just searched them this morning. Um, I'm, I'm part of the team at, at the Institute of Education. I'm part of the team that's writing the new ones. And there's nothing, there's not, the word oracy doesn't feature nor does the word speaking or listening. I've tried loads of different things, spoken, just zero mention of it. So it's, it, that, that hasn't happened. And likewise, in the, in the Ofsted inspection framework, it's not there. And, and that would be a way to sharpen people's focus, right? Like if it was, if it was on the Ofsted inspection framework and they knew that Ofsted were going to look at that, um, they would make it a thing, right? That, that sharpens people's focus very effectively. And I know that, that, that people were talking to Ofsted about this. People at Voice21, for example, Becky Earnshaw, who you mentioned earlier, uh, was talking with people in Ofsted prior to the, the inspection framework that came out in 2019. But it's not in there. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, what do you think the resistance is to that? I don't know how, how much you're able to answer that question, but what do you think the resistance is? I wonder whether it's this idea about measurement. I mean, I finished teaching in 2015 and at that time, I don't know how much the situation has changed. It was all about evidence in books. Ofsted wanted to see progress in books. If you did something, you had to record it down in a book so they could see that you'd done it, so they could prove that you'd done it. And, there, you know, and I, I taught um, year two children, so that was <laughs> frustrating to say the least, considering that it's still quite practical based when they're only little. I wonder whether so part of the resistance is around this, this desperate need to evidence everything. And I think that's been driven by the accountability framework that schools are in and the accountability, how we hold teachers to account as well. That, you, you know, if you can't record it, you, therefore you can't measure it therefore you know did you do it I don't know I mean you do wonder whether this is around not trusting teachers enough as professionals um I I, I don't know maybe I'm being maybe I'm being unkind but you, it does feel to me I understand it's easier if you're assessing a piece of writing to get children as as we used to do a piece of writing at the beginning of the year at various intervals throughout the year and to show how they've progressed in that piece of writing. The same with, with reading. It's, it's really straightforward. It's really easy. As you outlined, it's really hard to do a baseline assessment in speaking and, and listening. And it's really difficult to show how that's progressed. And it's really challenging to look at, you know, the different ways that could have developed. So is that is that the problem that it's it's in the too hard list and therefore it's just ignored? that we, ha we can't find an easy solution and and schools are 
you know, they're desperately short of time. The CPD is variable and we don't get enough of it. Schools are underfunded and therefore can they afford to pay for it? You know, all these different practical everyday challenges. So maybe developing a oracy curriculum that can be measured and assessed is just in the too hard box. Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. And 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 so I asked a couple, I've got a couple more questions on this before we move on. Um, I, I shared this with my colleagues at Oracy Cambridge to ask if they had any questions that they'd like to put to you. One was, um, do, do, is there any evidence that you've, that you've seen so far that the inquiry has, has had an impact in terms of thinking or policy in the Department for Education? Well, I'd like to be positive. So uh, how, I can't say, uh, I'd like to say yes. But probably not as much as I would like it to have had, if I'm being absolutely honest. We did have, to be fair, we had a positive meeting with Robin Walker, the new schools minister, about a month ago. And we did a joint meeting, the Oracy APPG and the APPG uh, for the uh, Royal College of uh, speech and language therapist so it was it was looking at sort of all aspects of speaking and listening and that meeting was positive and I was a bit disappointed when the white paper came out because I was hoping to see something on oracy in that white paper but I don't think but I think they're still sort of receptive to the idea I think if I'm being honest um the previous schools minister was not receptive to the idea whereas Robin does seem to be much more open and, and in that meeting he seemed to take on board the very very clear evidence they're talking about having an evidence-based uh, policies going forward and they're talking about you know giving all this money to the eef to look at sort of what works well you know we've got the evidence <laughs> we've got it it works you know obviously matters it works it's successful you know we have all that evidence so um i would like it to have more influence than it does and i think we just have to keep going with it to be honest and, and keep raising it and, and that's why i said earlier on i was pleased the chair of the education select committee mentioned it uh when he was questioning the secretary of state and if we can start to build friends and allies in all different political parties who are interested in education to speak about this then it's going to have a greater impact but it's definitely um not job done <laughs> yes it's a work in progress you I mean, you're right on the evidence i mean there's no shortage of evidence like whatever i, I did a, re a review a while ago for the welsh government with neil mercer when they were doing their their re rewriting the curriculum for wales and they've really taken oracy on board interestingly i'll be I'm watching how that plays out with keen interest but we did a sort of review of the literature and in terms of cognitive outcomes like if you want the grades to go up if you want to improve verbal you know non-verbal reasoning improve literacy outcomes improve outcomes for bilingual quiz like whatever it is that you want there's abundant evidence that spoken language focusing on spoken language will help you get there the second category was social and emotional outcomes helping i mean you see like it, it's transformational it's not just like the reason that i'm so passionate about working in in the oracy space it's not just learning a skill like learning how to juggle or how to balance equations or whatever. It's totally transformational. Like when kids like get themselves to the point where they can stand at the front of a room, for example, and deliver a knockout speech, it totally changes them. It changes how they think about themselves, about what they could go on to do in the future. It changes their, their relationships with their peers, with their family members. Like it's totally transformational. It's so important. And then in terms of life outcomes as well as the other category, you know, we know that um, you know the, the, the quality and quantity of spoken language interactions, especially in early childhood, are hugely powerful predictors 
um, of future outcomes in terms of education, life outcomes, health outcomes, you name it. Um, and in one sense, that's quite a horrible thing to find, right? That the, the, the idea that somebody's future life trajectory could be set so early on um, by the experience that they have in early childhood that's you know not, not of their making or choosing. Um, but the flip side of that is the power that teachers have. Like we are uniquely positioned to do something about that. People often say things like, oh, I blame the parents or whatever. And I always think that's just such an unhelpful thing to say because you can't go into every home and like change the way that families interact with one another. But as teachers and as schools, we have a daily window almost into the child, into every child's life from age whatever, three to 18. That's, that's a massive opportunity to turn that around and to provide them with that talk-rich environment that they need to, to, to flourish and grow. Um, and so, so the, the, there's a lot of, of this, you know, you're right to, you know, addressing that. Like, we, we need to be, have, do more at the, at the top end, if you like, in terms of like, having this explicit in the Ofsted framework and in the DFE and in the MPQs, it would be nice to have it recognised more. But it's like, in a, in a sense... You know, sometimes you can kill things as well, can't you, with support from the top? Like it needs to be embraced more by the profession, I think. And so the second question I had was from from Pete Dudley, who asked, "How might schools be persuaded to take oracy on more and deeply build it into their curriculum and pedagogies?" From a school's point of view, is they, whenever they do anything, speaking. I mean, this is speaking from my personal experience as a teacher rather than as a member of parliament um it, it's knowing that it's worked and where it's worked so i think if you can some of the best uh, cpd i ever had was going to another school and looking how they did things there and being able to take it away myself so i think if schools are really interested in this then it sounds a really practical answer but i'd make contact with the oracy network find a school where this is actually happening and, and ask to go and visit it to go and see exactly what they do there i think that's would be my advice if they're interested in taking this forward but and, and then also talk to that school about the impact that it's had on those children i mean we've not mentioned yet mental health but i mean that's there's been a huge impact on the pandemic on children's mental health and oracy and is is so crucial to helping children discuss and evaluate how they're feeling you know th these these issues are only going to grow in importance but on a practical level i would contact the oracy network find out a school where there's, there's some really good practice arrange to go and visit it and, and talk to them about you know what kind of elements and ideas you can start to embed in your own school i mean Whenever you're taking on anything fairly new, you don't need to go from zero to a hundred. You could just look at, at having some extra elements in there, looking at the way uh, how much talk actually happens in a classroom. There's some studies done on um, which are really easy for teachers to do to work out how much time do we do you spend with the just the teacher talking or the children responding to the teacher, how much of the conversations that are happening in the classroom are actually children problem solving and working things out together you know what what is the amount of classroom talk and, and what kind of classroom talk is is happening in your in your school that's that's something you could start to do as an individual teacher to actually evaluate the way that you teach and, and look at the different parts that you want to sort of develop because this obviously isn't and it's it's been challenged and criticized for it being about you know do we want to turn everybody into a debating society and it's not it's really not that it's it's so much more than that yeah and i think that's a, you know there are elements of it that could be brought into people's everyday teaching but the best way i i you know this is just the way i i learn the best way i think is to go and see someone else do it go and see where it works well and 
and see what you think. And I'm, I'm sure they'll be incredibly inspired when they do. Yeah, thank you. That's a brilliant answer. And I'll put links to, to the Oracy Network and also this brilliant resources, some fantastic books around that you can pick up and just like, there are loads, there's no shortage of very practical ways in which you can, like you say, start small um, and, and have some easy wins. Thank you. That's great advice. And it's sort of an implementation problem in a sense. And, and that's something that I've been working on a lot in recent years, this, this uh, new field of implementation science, like how we can implement change effectively in real world contexts. Um, and yeah, absolutely. The, the link that you make to mental health is huge. The, the reason that talk therapy is, is a thing, <laughs> you know, uh, like, like speaking, it's as this, again, it's a transformational thing. It's not just making some noise with your mouth and communicating an idea in somebody else's mind it's transformational it's cathartic it it sort of it helps you to process things it helps you to move to move feelings around your nervous system it's sort of a, a mystically wonderful uh process it's really quite mysterious and uh powerful um and so yeah, well, thank you for that. And thank you for, for all of this work that you've been doing for putting it on the map in this in this brilliant way. I'll, I'll link to the report in the show notes um, and um, we'll watch this space and see how this unfolds in the years to come. As you say, it's not a, it's not a fait accompli yet. No. Um, more to be done, but um, it's really, really helpful, the work that you're doing. So thank you for that. Um, so there's one thing that in, in the in this podcast, I really like to to get to know the person a little bit and to get to know their life and their own educational story like what was what was your what was your experience of school like um as a youngster and your later education it was i think it was okay it was, it was slightly unusual in that my primary school was really really small grew up in a small village out just outside hull and there were 63 children in that school and that was from four to eleven and my dad was also the head teacher of the school right so he was there for quite a few years but when it came to me being in his class he decided that was the point at which he wanted to leave and go get a job somewhere else because i think 24 hours a day of me when i was a youngster was maybe too much for anyone um so i was quite a lively child uh, I think that's, that's the polite way I think teachers put in this when they do their reports, isn't it? Lively child. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, my experience was really positive. I mean, my dad had probably very, my educational philosophy probably comes from my dad in that he was very into sort of practical, arty, creative kind of things that we used to do. And I look back and I had a, it was a really positive experience. I remember Friday afternoons when you'd move around different teachers and do all different craft stuff all Friday afternoon. And we did tie dye and we did clay and we did model making. And one of my favorite things were if you get the Monopoly board and each, like we divided into pairs and each pair had to build their room to fit, or not, not Monopoly board, sorry, Cluedo board, to fit on the Cluedo board out of wood and panelling and it, it, we, it was really practical and I loved it so I had a really great time in primary school and he used to sometimes send me home at lunchtime to go and get milk for the staff room for all the teachers and it, so it was quite a, it's quite a fun experience um so that was good uh secondary was I think everyone secondary is probably quite similar it felt massive the secondary school for 650 pupils which is still tiny but compared to the 63 I'd been to school with it felt really really huge when I went there yeah but my my favorite uh favorite thing at school was I was taught history by a northern Irish teacher who was <laughs> I mean to say that she had opinions would be um would be uh, 
and putting it mildly. So this was during the time of the uh, Northern Irish peace, peace Agreement, so when all of that was being signed and, you know, you had the ceasefire and you had the protocols being published. And so I don't know quite how our history lessons, we ended up reading these protocols and studying them and discussing them as and when it was happening uh, during that time of education. And, and she was a... She was a Northern Irish Unionist, so she had very strong opinions on these on these protocols and what was happening. And, and so that whole, so I remember all that time period really vividly because we were studying it uh, during our history lessons. I'm not quite sure how that fitted in with the GCSE curriculum, <laughs> but, but we did. Um, and we used to have these amazing discussions and debates in her classroom. And she, and one of them, when we were doing medicine through time, I think every, did everyone do medicine through time? I think, yeah, I think it's still a thing. Is it still a thing? Well, we did medicine through time, which ended up then evolving into the NHS. And then because of the discussions and talks we were having in the classroom, we ended up having a year group debate on the NHS. Um, and this was the first debate I ever did. And we ended it slightly, wasn't, I mean, this, we kind of made it up as we went along. So we had two people arguing that there should just be the NHS and there shouldn't be any private healthcare provision at all. That we had someone arguing for, help, uh, for NHS and private healthcare together and someone arguing that there should only be private healthcare and people should pay for them all. I'll let your listeners work out which, which, <laughs> which one I argued for. You're on Team Booper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah not yeah not quite my my argument at the time was um that we shouldn't have any form of private health care I've, I've mellowed as I've got older but um so that was my argument at the time and we started off and she the the history teacher started off by making people vote uh one way and, and obviously we lost and then at the end but we'd managed to convince the most people and she convinced me that that was really was a victory that we'd convinced most people at the end of this debate um even though obviously um the uh the middle person the middle person one but it was it was so that was really quite exciting but then and at 16 i went to sixth form college in hull which was great and that was obviously at the time of the um what was happening at that time? No, it can't have been the Northern Irish Protocol. It must have been something else that was a bit earlier than that that we were studying. I'm get, I get my dates confused and mixed up. But that was around 1997. And uh, so that was a fun time to uh, to be involved in and interested in politics. So, right. Did you stay up all night when Labour won? Was that a moment for you? It was. And um, I used to deliver the newspapers in the morning which I'd done since I was 11 years old which I really I know where people go you can't get it from 11 it's illegal until you're 13 it's like no no my parents sent me at 11 years old um with my sister to deliver the papers early in the morning um, and I remember delivering the papers after we'd lost in 92 because I was reading them walking up the hill and seeing all the somewhat want it and all of that on the front pages as I was sticking them in through people's doors and I didn't I wasn't quite fully aware of what was going on other than my parents were very unhappy <laughs> but aside from that I wasn't quite sure what was happening um, and then on the morning after when we won in 1997 I went to uh the post office and I bought all the morning papers for that day and this is I mean this just makes me sound like such a geek and I stuck them up on my wall <laughs> all the, yeah, all the pages the, of the newspapers because I was like so excited that things were going to uh, 
things were going to change. But I was too young to vote because it was May and I wasn't 18 until the July. So I couldn't uh, actually so vote. Do you think that your political awakening came through this history teacher? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, but then it sort of it died and sort of went away. So when I was younger, I was very, very opinionated and, and interested in politics and did politics saleable. And then sort of when I went to uh, university, it sort of just died off, I suppose, because you end up working, I was working as a teacher and then got married and had children and, you know, continuing my career. And so it became something that was, you know, I had a vague interest in, but not really, um, probably because, you know, I'm going to say this, but, you know, under the Labour government, things were fine. So why did I need to take that much interest? You know, it was all all right. Um, so I'd stopped being a member of the party and I wasn't just wasn't really involved but just because I suppose I had other priorities like having kids getting married doing my career and so I only became re-interested in um politics really I credit of course Michael Gove with my real political awakening he was an inspiration for me to get back involved right interesting oh right and, and so is that why you threw your hat in the ring what was it that made you stand in, in 2015 was it uh, 2017. So, 2017. so when it, so yeah, so Gove came in, and if you remember, it was all the march against austerity, march against the cuts. Um, the 68 is too late. The changing to uh, the curriculum, the fact they binned all the changes that were going to come through. I mean, all that time in 2010, 2011 was really difficult. So I got involved in the union, in the National Union of Teachers, and National Union of Teachers sent me to lobby my MP, which was Alan Johnson, and then I rejoined. The party after meeting him and then so it was 2017 when he stood down when he retired that's when I went in for it right amazing right I know I know we've not got very long left and so the, I'm going to do sort of some sort of three quick fire questions and um, this is the rethinking education bit one is um what are the positives what do you think that we're getting really right currently um anything that you think we, you'd like to see more of or boost the signal of in some way the second question is, what do you think the biggest challenge is that we face currently? And we could, we could let, let's set RSC aside for one question, like throwing the net more widely, educationally, could be at a system level, it could be at a school level, however you want to interpret it. And then the last one is, um, how might we fix that challenge? So we start with positives. What do you see that's out there that's really good that you, that you like the look of? I think generally the resilience of teachers during the pandemic, it's been unbelievably difficult uh, for so many of them and head teachers and school leaders and the fact that they're all there and they keep going and they're doing their absolute best I think has got to be a positive so the teaching profession I think would be what we're getting right at the moment yeah yeah thank you that's a that's a brilliant one and I couldn't agree more it's superhuman um to to have gone through what they've gone through with just so much turmoil and and mismanagement often coming out of the dfe this is like creating problems where they don't even need to exist um and absolutely yeah i agree with that um okay what do you think is the major challenge or maybe a major challenge is that we that we face currently okay i think we've got to look at children leaving without qualifications and what's happening you know in the school system and it's not just the school system i think but the wider support that's out there for children that we have so many leaving without any qualifications at all um that is a massive a massive challenge i i think we've got to look at teacher retention and morale because they've been through 
almost trauma um, teaching during the past few years and how difficult it is and, and we're not going to be able to fix anything around the difficulty of people even about qualifications if we don't have a workforce uh, you know an excellent workforce and if we're treating our teachers badly and retentions you know high retentions low and morale is really low then those are difficulties so I think we need to look at teacher retention and morale um, and then support for children emotionally uh, after going through the pandemic so children's mental health mm, yeah three brilliant ones all right let's take them each in turn we've got about one minute for each the the neat thing children not in education employment or training that's actually a separate thing isn't it you're, you're talking about children who leave with no qualifications yeah. um what what can we do on that front I think we've got to look at more of a wraparound solution for what's happening in this and and i know it's easy to say but you know if you have children go to school and they're hungry they don't have beds to sleep in they're you know worried about all the aspects that poverty brings that is going to have an impact on them educationally so if you want to fix education then we need to look holistically at the support around that child and that's that involves issues like housing and poverty and food and and, and that wider network of of support so i think we've got to do that but looking at what's happening within school the qualifications that that children are taking what's going on i mean it it, it can't be right that we have this system that's not working for so many children and and i don't think this idea of, of having a go at the profession all the time is the way to solve this i mean the profession's probably got the answers for what can be done to support these cohorts of children so let's look at what we can do uh what we can do to help them and that's very much tied into that emotional support as well and, and mental health because i mean some of the parents who come to me with with saying that their children are not attending school or not you know going to school is generally linked to mental health and anxiety and worry and stress so the, you can't separate these issues i think if we're looking at what's schooling for and if we think schooling is about leaving children leaving with the qualifications that they need to go on succeed and, and emotionally resilient to go on and succeed then we need to look at why that's why so many aren't and, and mental health aspects around poverty uh, are, and the way the workforce is treated are all part of all interlinked in trying to solve this yeah yeah they really are and that's something that's you know in that book that i mentioned in the in the tim brighouse and mick waters book they talked about you know there's some recent secretaries of state in particular ed balls and justine greening were both very much sort of on that that agenda of like the, like looking at the child in the round and, and linking up services so that there's better communication um happening uh, and that seems to have not been continued in recent years, which is a big shame. And that's the that's a big sense that I got from reading that book is just the sense of of waste. Like there are so many really good ideas that just sort of end up on the cutting room floor as the next incumbent comes into power. Um, and so lastly, so so yes, yeah, so so in terms of let's focus on the mental health one. We've got one minute. What can we do more with, with that? I mean, there's a spiraling mental health crisis, isn't there? The numbers are really alarming, as are the individual stories. What do we need to do more on that front? Blimey. Well, I mean, obviously, one of the things we're calling for is, is counsellors in every school, but I and that is certainly part of it, having getting children to have the access to that mental health support. But I think we need to be stepping back from it and looking at what's causing this crisis because if we're only sort of 
trying to stick a plaster on it on you know and I think it is important to have counsellors in schools I think that's a great idea but that's not looking at what are the causes of children's mental health uh, problems what's creating this anxiety in our young people I think we need to get down to the cause it's that famous phrase isn't it stop looking at why people are ending up in the river go further upstream to see why they're jumping in you know what what what's going on and I think if we're looking at what's causing the mental health crisis I think it's that lots of children being frightened during the pandemic they've been worried and they've been frightened their financial instability in families has increased poverty is increasing in in families you know all these different aspects that are putting pressure on our young people are increasing and we need to be looking at sort of trying to solve some of those problems as well um i'm not just going to say social media but i do think we need to look at that as well because i mm. just from being a mum myself that can cause an awful lot of upset with um with people so uh, with young people so i think we can't we can't just give this as a problem to teachers to fix within a school teachers can't fix the problem of children's mental health just within a school even if they were able to have a trained counselor in every single school and every teacher trained up in mental health we've got to look at what's going on in society that we have so many of our children and young people suffering so badly with their mental health yeah, absolutely. I think we need to get tough on the causes of mental health, as it were. Yes. To, to, to coin a phrase uh, or to adapt one. So that, that, that brings us to the end of the hour. Thank you so much um, for your for your time today, Emma. This has been really, really interesting and enjoyable. Thank you for all the brilliant work that you're doing and all power to your elbow. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Lovely to chat to you. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change. And if we don't try.